Hey everybody, welcome again to F This Movie, the official podcast of FThisMovie.com, movie love for movie lovers. My name is Patrick Bromley, and I'm super excited for this week's show because we are celebrating 1994 in film in the run-up to F This Movie Fest on February 24th, which we'll talk about in just a second. So we are watching one of, or watching, talking about one of 1994's biggest films, James Cameron's True Lies. I am joined for this very special episode on True Lies by the man who constantly lies, JB. That's all I do is lie. (laughs) Or is that a lie? (laughs) I'm so glad we're celebrating 1994 this month because, of course, it's the year that, well, I pretty much realized I was dug in and there was no changing my life at this point. I had been teaching for a number of years. My son turned four the die was cast. This is going to be it pretty much until, oh, I don't know. I moved to California in 30 years. right. I floated Um, a theory on a recent podcast that hasn't aired yet as of this recording. Adam and I did a show on 1994's Street Fighter. Did Jake used to like the movie Street Fighter? Well... I'll I'll tell you, and now I have to dig back into memories. He was always an avid video game aficionado and played all those games. In fact, a lot of his musical taste is based on the soundtrack to the Tony Hawk games, which had amazing soundtracks of really good songs. Mm-hmm. That's where Jake first heard the Ramones. So he played Tony Hawk. He played Mortal Kombat like nuts. He played Street Fighter. And there was one other one. Um, Maybe the other one was Mortal Kombat. But he was a big fan of the Mortal Kombat movie. Okay. Less so Street Fighter. But he played both of them. Oh, I remember the fourth one was um, that GoldenEye game that was sort of the first first person shooter that was Mm -hmm. really... Oh, my God. I, I can close my eyes and see walking through endless wooden crates and someone somewhere shooting at you. But does the Street Fighter movie have Raul Julia as M. Bison? It does. Okay. Um, Just a week ago, he brought that up because um, he had fond memories of it. Um, I've just been handed a note from my wife. Uh, that Jake played a lot of cowboy karate. Oh, and okay. if you if you've never heard of cowboy karate, it's because it's a video game he invented <laughs> and drew on paper to show us what it would look like. I remember there was cowboy karate and there was mountain crush. I believe in mountain crush, you were climbing a mountain and you had to beat people up to get to the top of the mountain. Um, so Street Fighter came up and um He had very fond memories, and I said, um, I always get a little sad when I think about that movie because Raul Julia knew that he had this condition, and he gave an interview where he said he did the movie for his kids, Yeah, that he wanted to do something that was sort of up their alley, and um, he never phoned it in because my memory is he's really good in that, and um, that that movie's a lot of fun. You're right about the first part. So, so you know what I might be thinking? When I took Jake to see Mortal Kombat back when it came out, yeah. I was amazed 
at how good it was, considering it didn't have to be that good. Okay. The game was such a phenomenon. Right. I thought they had actually made a movie out of it. They weren't just cashing in on the name. Street Fighter is fun in my memory, and then I sit down to watch it, and I'm like, oh, Street Fighter's kind of a drag. But I was thinking it was more of a kid's movie and that Jake liked it. For some reason, that was in my head, but this confirms my theory. Even kids don't really care for Street Fighter. Right, and I would argue that in much the same way that we can draw a dichotomy, are you a Beatles guy or a Rolling Stones guy? That in terms of the movie... You're you you're either a Street Fighter guy or a Mortal Kombat guy. Okay, I could see that. Uh, the reason also, why I still oh, remember liking the fights in Mortal Kombat. It's been a while since I saw Mortal Kombat, <laughs> I, but I think was was Mortal Kombat ninety four too. No, it was not. It was ninety five or ninety six. I think. Okay, so he was five or six, which again. Um, when we look back at how old he was when he was watching certain movies, what were we thinking? <laughs> but um, I remember, I think that's the last time I saw it. I don't think I have revisited Mortal Kombat. In any case, um, I'm looking forward to the podcast on Street Fighter. And um, I know your column that dropped today, I thought was really good about the 24 hours of movies. And um, Rob's review of Argyle was magnificent. I know I sent him a text telling him how much I enjoyed it and quoting a masturbatory symphony of noise. I liked the line about that the movie doesn't have the political uh, shit. Uh, something about the political acumen God gave a chicken nugget or something. I'm, I'm not getting it right. But Yeah, uh, and we had been seeing trailers for that damn thing forever yeah. at the show. And um, I was thinking that for years and years, I held in my head a magazine review of the last episode of Lost. And I had wood burned in my brain. In fact, in my old classroom, I had it written on a sheet of paper, so I never forget it. The critic, whose name I wish I could remember, called the season, uh, the series finale of Lost, three hours of, th- I'll start again, three hours of slow motion bullshittery. Sure. But now I think in my mind that will now be replaced by a masturbatory symphony of noise. Thanks, Rob. I will still see Argyle at some point. Such is my love and devotion for Bryce Dallas Howard, but I'm not rushing out to see it. Well, uh, John Cena was on a talk show. Let's say it was Colbert. And he said he couldn't talk about any of it because it was so full of surprises and twists that he didn't want to engage in spoilers. And for those of you listening, I'm not going to engage in spoilers. But realizing we would probably skip it, uh, Jan went onto the World Wide Web and found out what the big twist is. Yeah. And I think any of our listeners, if they were to sit down at a desk and be given this as a word problem could figure it out because just based on the trailer, it seems that it's one of six people. Sure. I'll leave it at that. It's the CGI cat. The reason we're talking (laughs) about 1994 so much is uh, in celebration of F this movie fest 2024, which is happening February 24th at 10 a.m. Central standard time. 
We're all going to get together online and watch movies over Twitter. Yes, we know Twitter is a terrible place to be these days, but it's all we've got uh, in terms of running this fest. So we're sticking with it till the whole ship sinks. And a lot of our friends, a lot of our friends for years have only been on Twitter for F this movie fest. Yeah. And then the rest of the year, they either ignore it or they drop it. That that's been a phenomenon for a long time. Which is a totally viable option. Um, at 10 a.m., we're going to watch The Mask. And then we're going to watch Stargate. Then Terminal Velocity, a movie that I'm hoping to turn some people on to because I love it dearly. Then Cabin Boy. Then Time Cop. And our headliner this year is Speed. Uh, which starts at you have to watch six movies in a row with no bathroom breaks. Hop quiz, asshole. What do you do? What do you do? I tried to build in some decent sized breaks this year because, again, last year one of the issues was all the movies were long, and so the breaks were too short, the whole day ran too late. Uh, we were all very tired by the end, but we try to do like a live show after the fest is over, which we'll try to do again this year. And it will be a little earlier, which is nice. Um, do people realize that they can take their own personal breaks at any time? <laughs> or they don't want to miss people, anything. Are some people laboring under the misapprehension that when they're on Twitter, we're somehow monitoring that. <laughs> oh, wait, Patrick, someone in Paris just got up to take a piss. Penalize them on the yeah. big board. <laughs> oh, you've you've been to the house. You've seen the big board. Oh, that's uh, from Dr. Strangelove. He'll see everything. He'll see the big board. <laughs> um, so I hope you can join us on February 24th. Jay Bones, have you seen anything good lately? Yes, very quickly. And I believe I texted you about this, and I may have tweeted, but who knows the difference anymore? Mm-hmm. It's all a melange of nonsense. Um, I dragged my ass to the theater uh, to see something again, and I hardly ever do that because the streaming window is so short. But I couldn't resist this, especially because at my new theater of choice, it was on the good screen. How can you avoid anything on the good screen? Uh, it's not IMAX because they aren't licensing the name, but it's it's big and loud. In fact, I would call the entire screen a masturbatory symphony of noise. <laughs> um, I went to see Godzilla minus one minus color mm-hmm. because I love the movie last year and I love black and white. And I thought, well, this will be an interesting experiment. And if anything... I liked it better in black and white, and that just might be me because I love black and white. But in a lot of ways, it keeps reminding you that this is a prequel, very much a prequel to the the 50s film. And um, if anything, Ebert had this theory for a long time that black and white helps you to focus on things because you're not focusing on the color. You're not being distracted by pretty pictures yeah um but that was very much worth it if any of our listeners get a chance uh to see godzilla minus one minus color it's not just a gimmick um have i talked about lynch oz no it's currently on the criterion channel 
And I just found out it's getting a physical disc release. So more people will be able to see it. Uh, they gave the task to, I think, six filmmakers to make a short documentary about David Lynch and his interesting relationship with Wizard of Oz. So it's very much like Room 237, only it's good. <laughs> um, it's really good. And the filmmakers are different enough and the, the, the thesis each one is exploring is different enough. And obviously I knew about the obvious references to Wizard of Oz in his work, but it goes way deeper than that. And again, as opposed to Room 237, which is nonsense, they really get to the heart of how he's been influenced by Wizard of Oz, very much exploring the way any artist might be influenced by something that manifests itself in its work. It's very much worth your while. And as I was discussing with Patrick before we hit play or mm -hmm. record or whatever the hell the button says, <laughs> uh, I just finished Fargo season five. The one with Juno Temple, John Hamm, Dave Foley, and Jennifer Jason Leigh. And it's amazing. Um, some of the best TV I've seen in five years. It's awesome. Um, check it out. Be patient. Takes a while to get started. And then as it unfolds, you slowly realize, oh, this is a work of art that's about a bunch of things and is making an interesting comment on all of them. So I have only seen Fargo season one with Billy Bob Thornton and Kirsten Dunst, maybe, or maybe she was season two. Billy Bob Thornton, Martin Donovan, I think was season one. Right. When we finished season five, we went back on the Hulu screen and just sort of gave ourselves a preview of the first four. Although I've read that, that it runs hot and cold, that some seasons are better than others. Well, season one was essentially a sequel and remake to the movie because in a lot of ways you have a Francis McDormand stand-in character. You have Billy Bob Thornton as sort of the hitman stand-in. You have Martin Donovan as the William H. Macy stand-in. So it's just remaking the movie. But then there's a subplot where like Oliver Platt finds the bag of money that Steve Buscemi oh planted or you know left in the snow so it, it's it's a sequel and a remake it's very strange but my question is all the seasons are self-contained right like i can watch season five without watching the first four very definitely i think okay. one of the only things they have in common and this goes back to what you just said that these fx shows sort of bounce a ball off the original film because there are concepts and in one case lines of dialogue that repeat okay so if you're as familiar with the movie fargo as you and i are mm -hmm. you're like oh okay that's from this and surprisingly i don't think this is a spoiler in fargo season five there's a weird callback and it can't be accidental to stripes there is a shot that is composed and the content of the shot, what is happening in the shot with the actor is exactly from stripes. 
And I wondered why the shout out, other than it's funny, it's funny in Stripes and it's funny in Fargo. Again, it's not a spoiler. It's the scene where John Larroquette, as the commanding officer, is playing with his toys in his office. Oh, yeah. And he's running the tank and like doing the screaming of the soldiers that it's going over. That's repeated in Fargo season five. For what reason? I have no idea. I was afraid it was going to be the scene where Bill Murray drops the pizza in the street because that part always makes me sad. Well, and that shows what great filmmakers they were because that gets to you. Um, Last Friday at Navy Pier, Mm -hmm. uh, most of the cast of Groundhog Day gathered and they uh, were declaring February 2nd Harold Ramis Day in Chicago. Yeah. And people gave speeches and it was very delightful. If you're interested, you can watch it on YouTube. It's about a half an hour long. And I believe there will now be a bust of Harold Ramis on Navy Pier. That's amazing. They they showed the bust. And um, I assume that's where it's going to go, right around Harry Carey's restaurant. I think Um, the bust has a supporting role in Ghostbusters Frozen Empire. Before he passed away, um, I used to run into him in Chicago a lot. I mean, once I was attending something at the Second City, so that made sense. But uh, one night I went to see uh, my friend Jeff Garland perform stand-up, and Harold Ramis was there. And after the show, we had a brief conversation, and he was really nice, like authentically nice, which comes up again and again if you watch the YouTube video about Harold Ramis Day that um, he was always down to earth and he treated everyone really nice. He was the best. I mean, he treated me nice and I was just this drunk guy uh, (laughs) getting out of a comedy show. You had said that you uh, were going to post a question or pose a question to our audience about which movie to go see. This is your F this movie personality test for the day. Last week, I faced a conundrum. Fathom Events uh, was showing The Wizard of Oz for January because this is its anniversary. Um, Much like the critic screenings at the Elk Grove that you sometimes host, Fathom Events has really leaned into anniversaries. If the film isn't celebrating an anniversary, you're not seeing it this year. So uh, for January, they were showing Wizard of Oz. So it's a gloomy Wednesday night. You have a choice. Wizard of Oz um, at participating theaters or at a small local joint. They have their own classic series, John Waters' Cry Baby. That's your choice. Uh, Save Godzilla minus one minus color for another night. You have a choice between seeing the original Wizard of Oz, Fathom Events, or Cry Baby. Which do you choose? The answer says a lot about you. Now, go seek out your significant other or spouse. Ask them which of the two movies you are more likely to go see. Their answer will be correct. Interesting. That's my prediction. So when the podcast is over and Erica gets home from work, take her aside. Mm Mm-hmm. Tonight, I have a choice. Wizard of Oz or Crybaby. Which one do you think I'm going to see? Mm -hmm. And Erica will say, well, neither. You never leave the house. (laughs) Which one did you go see? 
unfortunately, because of my advanced age, I threw my back out. Last oh, week, right. And I got to see neither. Oh, so here's your future listeners. <laughs> wah, 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 wah. Um, I, I still remember going to repertory screenings of Wizard of Oz. This might have been in the 80s. And you could clearly see the string on the lion's tail. It was hip. It was hypnotic yeah. as it swung back and forth, swinging his tail. And then I still remember the repertory screening when the string wasn't there anymore because <laughs> they had done some sort of digital magic. Um, they had restored the film for the 80th time. And now you will not see a string. Could we argue that the original string was part of the film's charm. Yes, I want to see the strings on the ships in War of the Worlds, you know, like when they... Oh, they got rid of those, too. Yeah. Although, um, if any of you uh, can play 4K discs, the 4K version of War of the Worlds is really something. And there's a soundtrack option uh, to listen to it with a soundtrack that Ben Burt supervised, and it's crazy i think we've talked about this before on the podcast when the original spaceship that round uh, sewer cover type thing starts to unscrew if it makes a crazy scratchy noise that's the ben burt version interesting and it's worth it to rewatch the entire film just for that soundtrack option plus the colors are yeah god I love that movie that's good um, I've been mostly just rewatching 1994 stuff. So I, uh, Erica and I kicked off 1994 month with the paper directed by Ron Howard, which I hadn't seen in years and she had never seen. And five minutes in, I turned to her and I said, this movie was made for you because it's a movie with a lot of people talking very quickly at each other. Uh, it's a lot about like social justice it's about journalism. It's about all these things that she's really interested in. Uh, and she was riveted. I won't speak for her, but I know that she really loved it. Are you a fan of that movie? I am, although I haven't seen it in a dog's age. How would you say it compares uh, to the recent Steven Spielberg film? I need to rewatch The Post. Uh, it's Those titles are generic and could easily be confused. My gut right now says I like the paper better, but I definitely need to revisit the post. A few weeks ago, I watched the post again. Yeah. And again, was confronted by, I don't think we have a name for it yet. Maybe some of our listeners can suggest a name. That Spielberg is so good, we take it for granted. And so his films don't get the attention and right. the talk that they deserve. Because if any other filmmaker had made it imagine any other filmmaker making bridge of spies right and that that kind of sucks because when you revisit spielberg's films it's a treasure trove and it's like why didn't this get the attention it deserved and that was certainly true of the post which is amazing oh uh, i need to rewatch about, it for sure then for about seven different reasons one of which is the cast um yeah. But it's it's great. And so this makes me want to revisit the paper. Yeah, it's it's uh it's really worth seeing. It's you know, it's stuck in the nineties a little bit, but it's one of those great 
old-fashioned Ron Howard ensemble movies that he was really doing well for a long time and seems to have stopped doing. I remember when I first saw Backdraft, I wasn't impressed. And then several years later, I went back and rewatched it and had the same conversion that this is, yes, it's old-fashioned, but, you know, telling a story well, um, that's not the worst thing that um, a lot of his films I really like. And I especially like it because last year I heard him speak at Beyond Fest and the man is very good at telling stories, <laughs> and not wasting your time. Um, he told some anecdotes about working for Roger Corman that were amazing. And um, we were really glad we went to that. Uh, two more his real wife help. taking over his wife took over craft service at one point she said ask Roger how much he's paying per meal and Roger told him it was crazy small amount and Ron Howard's wife said well I think we could beat that so Ron Howard's mother-in-law and and wife did craft services for the rest of the movie and and did things like standing rib roast and the crew was so this is something I learned from my son. If you feed the crew well, they will have your undying love because they're used to right. oh, granola bar. <laughs> um, what's the best thing Ron Howard ever made? The best film Ron Howard ever made? I didn't say film. Oh, Bryce Dallas. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. In terms of movies, though? Yeah. Apollo I would 13. Say, yeah, that's yeah. the one that came to mind. For a long time, I had coined the Apollo 13 effect, where a film is so good, it still has you on Tinder hooks, even though you know how it ends. Yeah. You you know how yeah. Apollo 13 turned out, but God damn it, are you up in the capsule with those guys. Even when you've seen Apollo 13 before, not only do you know the ending, oh, yeah. you've literally seen the movie before. I screened it maybe two summers ago as part of the Critics Classics thing. And it was like, that movie plays so well. Um, all right, two more. Uh, Mike and I watched Death Wish 5, The Face of Death. Oh, my God. Charles Bronson's last movie, uh, which also stars, wait for it, Leslie Ann Down. Is that a person? Yeah, she's in, um, she's in Victor Victoria, I think. Okay. Oh, no, that's Leslie Ann Warren. Leslie Ann Warren I love. Leslie Ann Down, I want to say, I is remember. in Rough Cut with Burt Reynolds. Now, in Death Wish 5, is he killing criminals with a walker? Uh, no. When does he kill criminals with a Oh, because he's so old. I see what you're saying. Because he's killing criminals with, like, a remote control soccer ball, which <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand that. I'm trying to wrap my head around, uh, like, one guy is an Italian mobster. So he feeds him a cyanide-laced cannoli. And that I get. <laughs> but the soccer ball thing, this guy's not a soccer player. He's, if anything, they set up that he has... It's Robert Joy from uh, Land of the Dead and lots of other movies. Uh, they set up that he has terrible dandruff and he has to use this special shampoo. And I'm like, well, then oh, put boy. something I'm in the shampoo that's going to eat his scalp. No, remote control soccer ball that explodes. I... Uh... I tapped out after three. Three and, is the uh, best one. 
annoying autobiographical pause, my lovely wife and I honeymooned in New York and we went to Broadway shows. And one of the Broadway shows we went to was the original run of The Nerd, which on stage starred Mark Hamill and Robert Joy. Oh, nice. In fact, Robert Joy had the title role. This was before he got blown up by a remote control soccer ball. Um, yeah, he's in Atlantic City and he's also in... He's in everything, man. Desperately Seeking Susan, I believe. Yeah, he totally is. Yeah, good call. Yeah, good character. Um, very good. Uh, 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 so yeah, Death Wish 5, the, the villain is played by Michael Parks. It's set in the world of fashion. And is Death Wish 5 from 1994? Yeah. Okay. It's a canon now movie. It's after all starting to make sense. After canon had already collapsed, it became the 21st Century Film Corporation or something. That was Menahem Golan's um, latest bid for follow-up. Yeah, and he was still making Death Wish movies in 1994. It might as well have been made in 1986. Uh, it starts really well, and then by the end, it's barely held together with scotch tape. It's. Uh, Great and not great at the same time. Bronson, answer your phone. We still have the IP. <laughs> uh, and then the last movie I'll talk about, I saw for the first time. It's a 1994 first time viewing Damon Wayans in Blank Man. I had never oh. seen <laughs> Blank Man. And? It's not good. Uh, it's directed by I've, Mike. I've never, se- I've never seen it. <sighs> it's directed by Mike Binder, who... Uh, made a movie in the 2000s that I really liked called The Upside of Anger and then has made a bunch of other movies that are not great uh, and did a, a a series on HBO for a short time that Erica really liked called The Mind of the Married Man. He was a stand-up comic who became a filmmaker. Yeah, and I vaguely remember him. Damon Wayans is like a, a nerdy guy who turns himself into a superhero by like putting a blanket around his... It's kind of a John Ritter hero at large situation and he becomes a citywide phenomenon. And it's, I give it credit for trying to do superhero tropes before those were super like codified by years of Marvel movies. And right. But as we're discovering 1994 very much contains movies that were cashing in on Batman. Yes. And Blank Man tries to be the funny version of that, but it's not. The jokes aren't there. David Allen Greer plays his brother and sidekick. And David Allen Greer is really trying. Like, that guy will give it his all. Damon Waynes never comes up. And I like Damon Waynes, but he doesn't come up with a funny character. There aren't good jokes. It has nothing to say about superheroes. There's a little bit of like a let's stand up and fight for our city message that I like, but the movie was uh, a big disappointment. David Allen Greer appeared in the recent Candy Cane Lane, the Eddie Murphy Netflix Christmas confection, and was very good in a small part. But I think I've mentioned this before. The best part of Candy Cane Lane is that was filmed on the Universal Backlot. So for three months, you were not allowed on Wisteria Lane on the tram <laughs> tour because they were filming. And now that filming is over, long over, uh, we go back to Wisteria Lane. And uh, they used to really play up the Desperate Housewives thing. But I think someone realized that show was a long time ago. And there yeah. are people who don't even remember it. 
Yeah. So the new tram tour script highlights Candy Cane Lane, smart, and the Munsters, which sometimes went unsaid. And I wish every time they would mention that the Burbs was filmed there. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if people remember the Burbs enough. People like us do, but I don't know if the average tram tour taker. True, but I think I think everyone remembers the Munsters. Jeez. Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, let's talk True Lies, baby. James Cameron's True Lies. This is his follow-up to Terminator 2 Judgment Day. He reteams with Arnold Schwarzenegger for a remake of a French film yes. that is scripted by James Cameron alone. Uh, the French film is called La Totale. Um, Cameron often works with a co-writer. He does not in this case. I feel that's important to bring up because it may color the rest of the conversation. Um, it was one of the, it was, I think the most expensive movie ever made at the time of its production. And the money's on the screen. Money's on the screen and goes on to be the third highest grossing movie of the year behind the Lion King and Forrest Gump. Um, you last saw True Lies in my basement because we watched it. We did a 94 double maybe two summers ago. We watched this and Terminal Velocity in my basement. You don't remember this? I remember True Lies. Why do not? Why do I not remember Terminal Velocity? You don't remember us singing Ditch Brody like every time he was on screen? Could I have not been there? I'm pretty sure you were here. Uh, my memory goes in. <laughs> when you watch the movie for at this movie fest, you'll say, I remember this movie. We watched it in Patrick's basement. I, I just might. Um, yeah. The Jean-Claude Van Damme film that, that has hockey in it. Sudden death. Whenever I think about that film, I'm back in your basement. Okay. Cause that was part of an F this movie fest. No. Hard Target was, was part of an F This Movie Fest. That's the one where he's on the bayou. Right, but the hockey one you once showed us in your basement, maybe for your birthday or something. Perhaps, perhaps, yeah. I so, wouldn't put it um, past me. So I'm watching True Lies for the first time in a dog's age, and I'm watching the opening credits, and I had forgotten that it was based on another film. So I thought, well, maybe that's all for the better. But I will say... The the dialogue didn't bother me in this case, but I really think True Lie shows off James Cameron's mastery of narrative and set pieces. It's very well structured. Uh, okay. Although <laughs> I would push back here's, against that. <laughs> here's, here's a quibble. The middle section where Jamie Lee Curtis has to get her comeuppance when that chunk is done, we go back to the bad guy mm -hmm. and we've almost forgotten him mm -hmm. because he hasn't been on screen for 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. Also watching it again last week, um, the opening is very much Goldfinger between him and the scuba suit getting out of the water and being dressed in a tux. Mm -hmm. And also he's at this social event and he's making this explosion happen. Right. Both of those things happen in the first 10 minutes of Goldfinger. 
which is not accidental, I'm sure, if oh, James no. Cameron's... And it's, and it's it's almost like Cameron inviting the critics to say, this is Cameron's Bond film. Yeah, and just the shorthand for, like, see, he's the world's greatest super spy. Like, he's Bond. Um, so my feeling is... I agree that the dialogue is not terrible in this movie, although there's maybe seven too many utterances of the word bitch, but we'll get to that. Um, I'm a big believer. 99 problems and the bitch is one. (laughs) I'm a big believer in James Cameron as a storyteller. I think. No matter what you say about his movies and you might not like his movies and you may think he writes corny dialogue because a lot of times he does. Um, but he knows how movies work. He understands the engine. Yeah. That's, and that's so, what I mean. Yeah. So I think, I think something like Titanic or something like Avatar. And I know you're not a fan of either one, but I think even as somebody who's not a fan, you could point to them and say, these movies are very structurally sound they function really well as movies and i would argue that visually they are beautiful yeah um i think true lies is his biggest structural misstep really um yeah i because of that middle section i think it has a great first act i think it has a really good third act i think that middle section which Maybe can't I've not seen La Totale. Maybe the fault cannot be laid at the feet of James Cameron. But I just think that middle section is such a detour. Yeah, the um, film does lose sight of the villain. But in my case, on this rewatch, yeah. it was a welcome respite because I'm guessing uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Tom Arnold's third partner Grant was cast so that we would have an alternate ethnic stereotype to the bad guy who is just syphilitic. I can't remember, and I know this was a trope in the 80s and 90s, he is just every stereotype of a a certain ethnicity. Um, It's really disturbing. I have to give the actor credit for committing to the bit, but was he cast in a lot of other things? Well, I'll tell you. Because, because after this, it's know. like, oh, you're the really scary guy from True Lies. <laughs> um, <clears throat> his name is Art Malik. Yeah. And he's in a lot of movies. Holy cow. But this is maybe his, his biggest role. Um, he's in The Living Daylights, the James Bond movie. And he has a sizable role in that movie. But like, for example, three years after True Lies, he's playing the uncredited role of Ahmed in Booty Call. So he's just very much a working character actor who apparently in the 90s was called upon. If I read, you know, all of the... um, character names that he's played, it's just, well, we, we... cast him to play Muslim basically, or, you know, a uh, middle Easterner of nondescript descent. And you know what this reminds me of? Cause true lies, like you said, was a really big movie. Whenever I watch trading places, which I watch too much 
because it's often on cable and it's fun. Um, the waiter that takes their lunch order at the end is Barry Denon. Remember crack crab or stuffed lobster? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember yeah, the scene. Yeah. Very good, sir. And he runs off in the sand. That's Barry Denon, who played Punch's pilot in Jesus Christ Superstar. And when I watch Trading Places, <laughs> that end is, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Yeah, right. If you're a superstar fan and they are still out there, um, you love Barry Denon. And look, he's playing this little bit in a John Landis film. Well, Trading Places is a good point of comparison, A, because it also stars Jamie Lee Curtis, and B, because there are things in Trading Places that have dated horribly. Uh, It's one of my favorite 80s comedies. I love the Preston Surges of it all, but then we get to that sequence on the train, and John Gleason is being raped by a guy in a monkey suit. Where the bad guy really has to be punished. And Dan Aykroyd shows up in blackface, and you're like, wait, what movie is this? Oh, right, 1983. So we have to be willing to at least acknowledge films as a product of their time. Yes. And True Lies, for all of its sort of anti-Muslim sentiment, was a product of its time. It was more acceptable then to just paint uh, Middle Eastern and or Muslim characters. And I'm not using those terms. uh, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Interchangeably. Um, Right. To paint them in big, broad strokes as just villain. And And that's what this movie does, unfortunately. Although when I watch Trading Places, which I think I mentioned I do too much, I can't determine if it was a product of the time mm-hmm. or if um, – oh, not, not Ralph Bellamy, but – Don Amici. When Don Amici uses the N-word, yes, I thought that was a brave choice. Yes. Because you could see an actor saying, I'm not comfortable with this, but – Nothing cements in terms of that scene. Right. Who those two are than that. Which makes. I I don't think that would that would cut it now. I don't either. And and it's clearly the, the film is not like people have accused Quentin Tarantino movies of condoning it. It's no, very clear no. yes. that it's the villain of the piece revealing his utter racism and perhaps setting up that he deserves what's about to befall him. And even in 1983, when that movie came out, it was it's shocking because of it's the one time the word is uttered and he delivers yeah. it in such a way that it's like, oh, my gosh, you're just taken aback by the naked racism of it. That's what makes the weird racial stuff later in the movie with Dan Aykroyd in blackface even weirder because you're like, but this is kind of a progressive movie in a lot of ways. And then it and takes I, and steps I, back. And I forgive, I forgive the blackface because I think one of the things the film is saying is that he's not pulling it off well. Correct. Because from the moment he enters the train compartment, he hasn't put the makeup on all the way down his neck. Right. So it's a very transparent charade. Plus, Aykroyd's accent is so funny. And the way he interacts with with Eddie Murphy, 
it's Lionel Joseph. And they, they have a backstory together and they do that dance. Um, that forgives it a lot for me, but certainly um, Dan Aykroyd's blackface and the fact that the villain has to be anally raped um, screams the eighties. Yeah. Uh, the when, point is trading places action, when in most action films, it's not enough to kill the villain. The villain has to be killed dead, dead, <laughs> dead. And that gets us back to true lies. Yeah, it does. What befalls Art Mel? Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's pretty spectacular. Uh, Con Air is the movie that really, for me, solidifies dead, dead, dead. Because oh. John Malkovich in that movie dies seven times. Uh, or marked um, for death. Hoisted by his film. own petard. Yeah. Um, I, I, the one thing that's inexcusable with Art Malik's fate for me in this movie is when he flies to the back of the plane and racks his balls on oh. the on the fin, and we get practically an eye cross close up of like, oh, what yeah. are we doing? What are we doing, James? Cameron? Suddenly, suddenly, it's a very different movie. Um, speaking of a very different movie, before we forget, the uh, 4K is about to come out in a couple weeks. Yes. And I certainly recommend everyone buy that because as we discovered last week, I oh, streamed right. <laughs> it on Peacock. And I'm guessing, this is just my cockamamie theory, Peacock also has a level that's got ads, right? Uh, Yeah, I believe okay. so. So Patrick watches a 4k version on a streaming service. Yeah. And two people I know still have the DVD. Has it ever come out on Blu-ray? No. So it's going right to 4k and Blu-ray. And the DVD is non-anamorphic. So for years, people have been like, where the hell is true lies? But now it's finally getting a proper release. So if you have Peacock, you might want to wait a couple weeks because I'm watching it on Peacock last week. And suddenly I'm texting Patrick. Why does this at film like two in the morning, by the way? <laughs> oh, see, it's fine. I'm sorry. It's totally fine. I, it wasn't waking me up. I saw no, it the next I, morning and I was like, this is the diary of a crazy person. Exactly. I knew that you wouldn't get it till the next day. I didn't think you were yeah. awake or I was interrupting you. Yeah. So I start texting him with time codes <laughs> because the Peacock version has a bunch of mysterious fade to blacks that the original film doesn't have. So let's not wade into the swamp of the fact that every time a film is presented on commercial TV with commercials, it's compromised, and that's something that filmmakers swallowed. But my guess is, because there is a level of Peacock that does have ads, the version that's streaming on the ad-free version is the ad one. Right. And so the places where there's commercial breaks are clearly marked, but I don't know who figured out where these things should go. They're badly done. <laughs> so this was every, a... every time it happens. And if you're interested, I can give you the time codes. You're like that, that can't be. Plus I can't think of a film from 1994 that has that many fade to blacks because fade to blacks, fell out of fashion there's one specific one in the movie that i can remember and it sort of ends the sequence on the bridge when jamie lee curtis is hanging from the helicopter they're like well we don't need to see how they get out of this one and they fade to black 
and it picks back up with him going after Art Malik. But that's the only one that's purposefully in the movie. When you were texting me that, I w- I thought maybe that was the deal that like, oh, maybe this is some weird broadcast version that they forgot to take the fades out. And then a day or two later on Facebook, I saw a friend post about how he was watching Groundhog Day on the AMC Plus app and Which... was experiencing the exact the exact same thing, that there were all these fades to black, even though he's on the paid version. And you texted me that comment from the screen of screen yeah. grab and yeah. i'm sorry if i'm paying money for a streaming service without yeah. commercials yeah can you show me the movie that i don't think that's too much to ask yeah oh sorry if it's easier for you to use one version of the film for commercials no com- come on so that's a mystery solved um i will course, say this i'll for- be buying the 4k I want to as well, although there were a lot of complaints. People were very, very unhappy with the 4K transfer on Vudu. That's the way I watched it, and I thought it looked pretty good, but there's Cameron is one of these guys who likes to scrub detail, so the skin tends to look waxy. Um, I didn't notice it too much, but I might wait and read some reviews of the 4K Blu-ray. Before. Smart. I know last year I bought the 4K of American Graffiti, which has become a cause celeb on um, with YouTube critics because apparently, and I think I put it in the machine and spun it to see what they were talking about. Um, there are shots that look like an oil painting because it's been overscrubbed. Yeah. And that's a, a, a James Cameron phenomenon. The same day that True Lies comes out, I believe The Abyss and Aliens come out. And I'm yes. nervously waiting to see how they look. Because obviously I would like to own all three in 4K because The Abyss has never had a Blu-ray release either. And there's only a non-anamorphic DVD. So someone this is a huge the, upgrade. Someone on the Twitter machine, I think, got to see a... 4k transfer of the abyss it's on digital now and they were going on and on about how how wonderful it was so okay good fingers crossed i will say this for true lies Uh, i've been watching a lot of 1994 movies and erica and i finished true lies and four weddings and a funeral in the same day (laughs) true lies looks like it was made yesterday uh, I don't even think the fashions have dated particularly badly, despite being a 30-year-old movie. The cinematography is still so sharp. Um, everything about the movie still looks modern. It doesn't exactly feel modern, which, again, we'll get to. Um, but we then switched over to Four Weddings and a Funeral, which came out the same year and looks like it's from 1980. Like, the clothes the sort of muddy British cinematography, it just threw into sharp relief how good True Lies holds up visually. Part of it might be what I have taken to call the rebel without a cause phenomenon. That for decades, I showed rebel without a cause and the kids did not have this big, oh, this is from the 50s thing. Because the haircuts are short, and the clothes are very conservative and 
not anything flashy. Mm-hmm. And at the very least, there aren't there isn't anything visually that's distracting to take them out of the story, like um William Katz hairstyle and Carrie. Right. Right. Um, but if you think about true lies, it's a lot of army uniforms and suits. Right. And on men, that doesn't change. Although there is the scene where um, Jamie Lee Curtis rethinks her wardrobe and by ripping things off of her dress manages to become one of the sexiest things I've ever seen in, in my lifetime. Um, And I'm, I'm watching it with Jan and she's ripping the top off the dress and the bottom off the dress. And Jan just turns to me and says, convenient. (laughs) (laughs) I have a theory and people are going to, not like this theory because people really like this movie. And a few times I've said somewhat critical things about it on Twitter and gotten a lot of pushback. Um, I think this might be James Cameron's weakest film. Now, if true lies is your weakest film, you're doing pretty fucking good. Cause a lot of true lies is really great. And it's never less than very entertaining even when I don't think it all works or has, you know, dated views or, you know, all the problematic stuff that you already know about true lies. Like we'll talk about it, but um, if true lies is your worst movie, like you're batting like 800, you're doing really, really well. Uh, You, I know have a different opinion because you're less a fan of some of his later films. Well, I was going to say, I think you have just defined for the first time ever, oh, loyal listeners, um, the dichotomy between Patrick and JB. Yeah. I'm watching True Lies last week, and I'm thinking, I think this is my favorite Cameron film. Oh, interesting. Okay. I think it might be. You're okay. a much bigger fan of him than I am. Yeah. And I really like Aliens. Yeah. But pound for pound, I'm, I'd say True Lies is my favorite Cameron film. Okay, I love that. I love that we're sort of coming at it from two different places, even though I don't think our views on the film are that far apart. <laughs> well, in that, in that I'm willing to admit it's it's shortfalls. But again, um, as you said, it doesn't date at all, except perhaps its attitude towards its uh, antagonist. But also, it is just wonderfully entertaining. Yes. It exists to entertain you. Now, am I right in remembering that Arnold's compensation for this film was the Harrier jet? I thought that was Terminator 2, but I might be remembering that wrong. Because I sort of remember that, but but that might be public relations nonsense (laughs) um, that he was paid with a plane. Right. Um, and he's in an interesting place because this really is, he's really at his peak in 1994, his peak popularity, his peak Hollywood power. Um, it's actually starts to slip a little downhill post true lies. And he's also coming off the stumble that was last action hero. I know a lot of people love that movie, but it wasn't as financially successful as some of his other movies. Um, but well, he becomes he that right. Last action hero. Yeah, I think so. 
but he didn't direct it. No, no, no. But I'm just okay. saying, like, in terms of late 80s, early 90s, he's like bulletproof. He's doing Kindergarten Cop and Twins and Terminator 2. And he's like untouchable. And Last Action Hero is sort of the first ding in the armor in terms of like it got beat out by Jurassic Park. It was kind of beat up by the critics a little bit. So he was on the ropes a little bit, I think, when he made True Lies. And wait, True wait Lies. A wait, wait a minute. Who's on the ropes? Schwarzenegger. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you meant Cameron. No, I this could... is all I'm talking all about Schwarzenegger. OK, now I now I understand. Yes, he's on the ropes a little post Last Action Hero. <laughs> Um, and True Lies is very much a return to form and is while this might be my least favorite James Cameron. And I say that as somebody who still likes the movie, um, this is easily one of my favorite Schwarzenegger performances. I think he's so loose and so assured and confident and not reaching for jokes. I mean, the scene where he's given the truth serum. Yeah. And is his delivery on every one of those is so funny. Um, I just, I think he's so great in this movie and, you know, playing against type a little bit because in reality, we're not going to cast a six foot, 250 pound Austrian as the world's greatest secret agent. Like he just draws attention to himself by existing. <laughs> He does not blend in. I will say this in terms of his delivery and everything. Um, have you killed people? Yeah, but they were all bad. Yeah. That still makes me laugh. A great it's line a great line and a great delivery. Delivered yeah. wonderful. Um, I really like, I think it's in the Schwarzenegger documentary where Jamie Lee Curtis tells the story about how like, she was going to go, she was ready for a, a, a fight about where her credit should be um, because she wanted sort of above the title credit and her agents were pushing for it. And uh, with, without hesitation, Schwarzenegger was just like, yeah, of course, sure. And there was no fight. And she, she said it did big things for her uh, in terms of upping her quote and making her a big bigger movie star um, that it was a huge gift that he gave her without even hesitating at all. One of the many things I've learned is that actors contracts are largely based on their previous contract. It's almost like a question of law being settled by some sort of legal precedent from the right, past. Right. And so very often when I see a low budget film, I notice how many people's names are above the title because that was their concession to do the low budget film, knowing during their next negotiation, they could say, well, I'm above the title in this one. Yeah. That's very much um, a poker chip in contract negotiations. Where are you at on the performance of Tom Arnold? Well, I think he works here very well as um, the, the, the second banana, the comic foil throughout the film though. And maybe this is just my sound system. A lot of the times his voice sounded like he was 80 yard and throughout the entire film, it sounds like he has a cold <laughs> or is that, that I'm just not remembering Arnold's voice or maybe because he's aged. It sounds 
strange. I think I'm right about the ADR. Yeah, it's very possible that it is ADR'd, A, because he was not an experienced actor, or B, because he did a lot of takes, a lot of ad-libs, a lot of... And there's so much going on in the scene, you know they're doing the dialogue later. Right, and they have options to choose from, and it's like, well, you did these six funny lines, but we need the line that gets us into the next scene, so can you come in and loop that? Yeah. Um, Yeah, he's... He's an actor that, you know, I sometimes rub up against on screen, but I think he's used really well in True Lies. I think this is probably the best thing he's done movie-wise. That's the niche niche he he should have created for himself. And I guess, uh, famously, he and Schwarzenegger continued to be friends. Yeah, they're like lifelong friends, uh, which is adorable. I also like Tom Arnold as Stanley Stupid in The Stupids. (laughs) to have a John Landis callback, but those are maybe my two favorite Tom Arnold performances. He has one of my favorite lines in the movie also, which is when Eliza Dushku is getting ready to rush out the door with her boyfriend on her motorcycle and she's putting on her helmet and he says, Oh, I remember the first time I got shot out of a cannon. (laughs) Classic Tom Arnold. Um, It's still very disturbing to me when, because of his pack of cigarettes, secret spy camera, we see Dushku robbing him, like yeah. taking money out of his wallet. Yeah. Boy, that works. And there's no, um, that's never paid off, which is very uncameron like. Uh, yeah, you'd think there'd be something at the end. I mean, they pay off Bill Paxton when they don't need to, but it's like, well, we got to send people out of the theater laughing. So let's bring back Bill Paxton as the waiter in the last scene where they're, you know, now the Mr. and Mrs. Smith. That that whole bit screams reshoots. Oh, you think so? Well, I don't know, but it it's odd that they have to bring him back on. I was watching the film and I was thinking of, uh, and here my advanced age gets to me, the, the movie where Arnold goes to Mars, but maybe he doesn't. Total Recall, baby. Total, total Recall, because I keep calling it, we can remember it for you wholesale, because that's the book it's based on, that if... True Lies was made today and the studio was telling Cameron to make it really twisty, then Schwarzenegger, it turns out, would not be a secret agent. That's just his fantasy. And it would turn out that Bill Paxton is really a secret agent pretending to be the Schlemiel who's the used card salesman, that that's what they would add. I think Bill Paxton is giving a very funny performance in this movie. Unfortunately, it's in the section of the movie that I don't think works. Oh, I I agree. And again, much like Art Malik getting it in the balls by a Harrier jet, um, we can see that he's weak and powerless and and a and a jackass. Do we really need all the small dick he wet himself stuff? Come on. Uh, I don't know. Audiences want humiliation these days. <laughs> Can you make him more humiliated? (laughs) Well, that's the thing about James Cameron is there's nothing subtle about him really as a filmmaker. Um, And he likes to go big on everything, which works because of the kinds of movies that he makes. Um, But when he when he's afraid that you might not catch something, he's not going to let it slip through his fingers uh, the opportunity to really spell shit out. 
And at this point, we should talk about the bitches. <laughs> okay. Because in theory, uh, Arnold and Jamie Lee are in a, a very boring marriage that's slipped into routine and um, it's not tremendously exciting. And both of them are looking for excitement, although clearly Arnold gets plenty on the job. Yeah. And I really like the fact that in a better film, they would both learn that the other one was still bright and vibrant and capable of things that each one wouldn't imagine. But the way the film manifests this is that Jamie is unhappy with her boring marriage and is putting her toe in the water of having an affair. And in the universe of the film, she has to be punished for this, even though interestingly, she never actually has the affair. And so she has to be humiliated in some way, but the way that plays out is that, um, Jamie Lee participates in this scene where she's made to strip for Arnold Schwarzenegger being egged on by a voice on a cassette. Um, this is something I had never noticed before. Maybe I had gone to the bathroom that the French guy in the spy's office records that. Yeah. And doesn't he have this throwaway line that it's not very good? Yeah. Um, so it's very important that we know, well, that's not Arnold's voice. Well, I'm going to show you whose voice. It is. <laughs> um, but then she does this striptease that's, I don't think it's just me speaking. That scene is very famous yeah. because it's, my God. And Arnold starts to realize um, the truth about everything. And then, of course, the bad guys break in and, and, that's, um, and that's interrupted. But it really seems that both Jamie Lee and, to a lesser extent, Taya Leone are punished beyond what they deserved well and as my wife pointed out during the enemy camp sequence oh we have we have jamie lee there to kick Taylor leone's ass because it wouldn't be considered kosher to show men beating the crap out of it. right so well horrible cat fight in the limo that's really intense um, and so I guess both of them are being punished because they're both being pummeled. Early on, Art Malik slaps Tia Carrere like twice. And it's Oh, I'm sorry, Tia Carrere from Wayne's World. I said yeah. Tia Leon, and she's a different actor. No, it's okay. Um it's 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 jarring when that happens. A because we think he's just this guy working in her art museum, and then suddenly he reveals himself to be the big bad. By slapping her and saying, I'm calling the shots, you do what I say. But the slap is jarring. And so there's the only instance where we get sort of a man hitting a woman, you know. Um, I'm so mixed because, again, all of this may come from the French film. I honestly do not know. So maybe Cameron is just remaking that beat for beat. And maybe it works in the French film and maybe it still doesn't. I do not believe James Cameron to be a misogynist. I think his films bear out that uh, have been pretty progressive in terms of his female characters, whether it's Ripley or Sarah Connor 
or Rose from Titanic or Neytiri from the Avatar movies. I think he writes really strong female characters. Agreed. Um, so I cannot accuse James Cameron of being a misogynist, nor would I dream of doing so. But I do think this movie feels kind of ugly in its attitudes towards women. Um, because while Jamie Lee Curtis is a great character in a lot of ways, and she's very funny and she's um, obviously becomes this very strong super spy by the end of the movie, there's something about the need to humiliate her that's fucked up in the middle of this movie. Uh, that coupled with every other woman in the movie being called bitch just kind of rubs me the wrong way. And I just think there's something gross about the movie's attitudes uh, that, that keep me at arm's length. That there would be other ways of having him and her gain new respect for each other. Yeah. There's a glimmer of that at the end of the striptease sequence where you get the feeling Arnold realizes he's gone too far. Yeah. And um, then it's interrupted by all the, the sturm and drang of the bad guys rushing in. Right. Which, again, functionally, maybe that whole sequence exists to bring Jamie Lee into the fold. But I think there's maybe 27 different ways you could have accomplished the same thing. Yeah. Uh, even just having them be at home in their suburban house and the bad guys rush in and grab them, you know. So we don't have this this weird section where he's trying to fool her and humiliate her. And I get that, you know, I'm sure it helped with the movie's marketing. I'm sure it has helped cement this movie's reputation and the memories of many, many filmgoers, that strip sequence. Yeah. Um, but it just feels out of place. and And the movie sort of positions itself i think as an action comedy and a there's nothing very funny about that sequence and b i don't think james cameron is as funny as he thinks he is and that to well, me is one of the movie's shortcomings and i'm not a filmmaker but the sequence itself points to how it could have been funnier and that would have leavened a little bit of the issue that we're having that at one point, the little tape player oh, yeah. doesn't play what he wants. Well, what if the whole scene is predicated on the fact that Arnold is not a master of having that little Walkman say exactly what he wants it to say? That might take a little bit of the edge off of that he's trying to humiliate her, right. but he's he's incapable because he hasn't countered on the the cassette player. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. Um, I remember once I, um, there was a teacher in the district who taught uh, a nighttime um, adult education class, discovering the foreign film. And then he got a Fulbright scholarship to teach in Poland and he needed someone to take over the class for a semester. And he's like the same 10 couples sign up every semester. We've become a group. Uh, it'll be easy money and you can pick the films. And I did it and it was delightful. Although I discovered what they were paying me was added to my regular salary and it bumped me up to a new tax level, a new mm -hmm. tax bracket. And I wound up getting paid 
12 cents a class. <laughs> I did the math. That's what I grossed. And uh, the couples were delightful, but I still remember one of them. The husband was not evolved. And on a nightly basis, he would float a theory that just made everyone else slap their heads <laughs> and say, let's move on. Um, the one I remember is, you know, some women invite abuse. Ah. Yikes. So I'm watching True Lies last week, and I'm watching the Jamie Lee Curtis ritual, a, a ritual humiliation scene, and I'm thinking about that guy watching the film and saying, well, that's, that's really cute. It's so sexy, so that's going to rekindle their marriage. Yeah, but I, that's what he would say about that sequence and how fun it was. But I think that's kind of how the movie is positioned. Oh, oh no, 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 no. That that Arnold has ignored who his wife is. Right. And that's the scene where this gentleman whose name I wish I could remember, though I wouldn't say it out loud, um, <laughs> would say, oh, see, this is reminding him of what a treasure she is and how you've ignored her. And there are attempts to make it funny. And to Jamie Lee Curtis's credit, I mean, she does some really funny physical stuff. Like when she grabs for the bedpost and misses it and falls backwards or, you know, and that's, and that's another thing that works. Right. Because when real people try to strip, it's not like a movie. But then she immediately launches into the world's hottest strip scene. Yeah. And she looks amazing. And everything about it is meant to arouse everyone in the audience instead of playing for laughs, instead of uh, showing her gaining some sort of power. It's just about embarrassing her. And it's, yeah. it's fucked up. It's Let's just say it's problematic. <laughs> and then the movie just forgets about it because the bad guys rush in and they reveal that Harry's a spy and we are off into the third act, which is good. Again, the Maybe. third act works. Although the, the final scene when they're at the fancy party and they're dancing together. Yes. Begs a sequel where they're both spies. No, it's Mr. and where, Mrs. Smith, right? Why didn't that movie ever get made? I don't know. Truer lies? More true lies? Did you know that a couple of years ago, this movie was turned into a TV show? Yes, I did. I didn't until I looked it up on Wikipedia and saw there was a True Lies show on CBS. Yes, there uh, was. It lasted from March until May of 2023. And as I've said multiple times on this podcast... About eight years ago, my son shared with me, the studios are not interested in new stuff. Yeah. They're interested in mining their existing IP. And man, if I could have somehow made investments in that proposition, I'd be a rich man. Good Lord, that's all we get now. And I don't know the premise of the show. Maybe it takes place after the movie where they're both spies and Ooh, a couple. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a prequel. Well, that's showing... the thing. How they got there. 
Because it probably is, but ultimately that show is he's a spy and she doesn't know. And it's like, we saw that. That was the movie. Why would I want to watch that on a weekly basis? It seems to me, and again, I've never seen it. um, No one did, apparently. It would be a more provident path to have them fight crime together. Right. To pick up where the movie left off. To actually hire Tom Arnold to play that part again. <laughs> well, I'm I'm kind of not interested in a true lies that isn't Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jamie Lee Curtis. You know, I don't need to see two generic TV actors play these parts uh, because what those actors bring to the movie is a huge part of its charm. Yeah, the thing you have to keep in mind, and I was surprised. I believe this was mentioned when David Soule passed away. Television once tried to turn Casablanca into a weekly series, and David Soul played Rick Blaine. Now, is there an actor <laughs> who physically and in demeanor is less like Humphrey Bogart? Does that exist? <laughs> David Soul is the anti-Bogart. I mean, come on. Um, maybe that's the take. Maybe that's uh, why get... I wish- I wish I remember who played Ilsa. Plus, I'm guessing that either had to be a prequel or an expansion of the middle. <laughs> I mean, how do you? It's like Hamlet too. How do you make a sequel to Casablanca? Well, we follow their individual lives. Rick and the captain are living in France, and Paul Henry and Ingrid Bergman got away to America. Well, this is what I always They're say about. Talking about Psycho 98. Um, For better or worse, the casting of Vince Vaughn as Norman Bates is more interesting to me than what a lot of people say, which is like, they should have gotten Jeremy Davies. Jeremy Davies is a great actor. He would have given the the Anthony Perkins performance. Everything about him is like, he would have been Anthony Perkins 2.0. We have Anthony Perkins doing Norman Bates. We don't need it again. I'm more interested in somebody who's the exact, who's the least like Anthony Perkins. But again, you've accidentally brought up another film that defines the dichotomy between Patrick and JB. Oh, I know it. When you talk about that version of Psycho, that's the version, of course, that I derisively call Clouds and Cops. Right. Um, anything else about True Lies you want to say? Um, for all of our quibbles... It's very entertaining. Just keep in mind that it was 1994. It was a different time. It was a different time. It's wildly entertaining. It's a big entertainment. It's like what's something, it's like something you wrote in your column that dropped this morning. That at the time that a lot of these movies came out, they were three-star movies. Mm -hmm. But now in the entertainment desert that is 2024, they are five star. <laughs> True lies, if not for all the problematic stuff and the fact that the lineup is always and again this year, very action heavy, could very much have been part of F this movie fest, except that it's hard to come by um, because it's only streaming on services like Tubi, where there's commercials and that's going to throw us all off. Um but it's the kind of movie that would work well for the fest. It's a movie if that I the, like. If only the disc had come out earlier. Yeah, right. Uh, Although asking everyone to pony up for the 4K would have been unfair. Wait a second. Yes? At this movie fest this year, six movies? Six movies. Are all six streaming? Yes, I always check. Okay. At least rentable. 
Like they're not necessarily streaming on like services, but you can at least rent them. I haven't sat down and looked at what I own and what I don't. You do not own terminal velocity. (laughs) No, but I believe I have speed in 4K. Sure. That would not surprise me. Because last year, what year was Beetlejuice? 88. Was it? Oh, what year did we do it for the fest? Right. Uh, A year or two ago? It was like 2021. It was during COVID, I think. And and Jan and I were at our house yeah. because of COVID. Yeah. Yeah. That was the first F this movie fest where I think two of the films had come out on 4K. Oh. And so not only am I enjoying F this movie fest, but I'm seeing it in 4K for the first time. Yeah. And short of things like American Graffiti and some other famous things that aren't that great, uh, when the 4K is good, it's awesome. Yeah. And I remember... Um, it was a little bit like seeing Beetlejuice again for the first time because oh, of the nice. So we'll see. I have to sit down and make sure that I have all six films okay. because we're very much looking forward to it. And at some point between now and then, uh, Jan will be doing her column about food and beverage suggestions for the day. Nicely done. People look forward to that because it's super fun. Uh, we will be, you know, I'm kind of doing unofficial 1994 month, all month at com. The week of F This Movie Fest, which is the week of February 24th, we will be devoting a whole week to 1994, where everybody will be chiming in with pieces about 1994 movies that they love. Um, so you can look for those. The week of F This Movie Fest, please join us 10 a.m. Central on February 24th, celebrating 1994. J-Bones, thanks for talking True Lies with me. Wait, are are you sincere or is that a lie? Thanks for listening to FS Movie.